Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Today's episode is sponsored in part by the Sundance Now Doc Club. Can't get enough true crime content like Serial, Making a Murderer, Undisclosed, and Truth and Justice? Well, join the club. Literally. The Sundance Now Doc Club. The Sundance Now Doc Club is a new premium streaming service for curated nonfiction content. From the Peabody Award-winning true crime series The Staircase to the Oscar Award-winning documentary Murder on a Sunday Morning, Sundance Now Doc Club has an ever-growing library of critically acclaimed true crime content. It's available on the web, mobile, Apple TV, and Roku. Next on my queue is a documentary from 1962 called The Chair. In this doc, documentary legend Robert Drew follow attorneys Louis Neiser and Donald Moore as they attempt to save prisoner Paul Crump from the electric chair. You can check out The Chair, The Thin Blue Line, or just about any other documentary you can imagine on the Sundance Now Doc Club. Start streaming the vast collection of true crime titles and get your free month at www.docclub.com slash truth. That's www.docclub.com. D-O-C-C-L-U-B dot com slash truth. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and we have a very busy episode today. This week has been absolutely nuts. There's so much more new information coming in, one thing right after another, that involve Edward Aid's case, Kenny Snow's case, and right now there's a lot of things happening with Carrie Max Cook's case, and we even have an exoneration to talk about. I've actually had to throw away the outline for this week's episode three times and rewrite it. The wheels of truth and justice are rolling. So in today's episode, we're going to do four things. First, I want to go through a quick follow-up on the last couple of episodes. And after that, we have two very special guests. A couple of months ago, I interviewed on this show Jeffrey Diskovich. You'll remember Jeff is the man that was exonerated after serving 16 years for a rape and murder that he didn't commit. Since then, he's used the money that he received in compensation for his wrongful conviction to start the Jeffrey Diskovich Foundation. Well, Jeff's foundation is already getting results. This week, a man walked free because of the work done by the Jeffrey Diskovich Foundation. And in just a little bit, you're going to hear from Jeff and William. After that, I want to get started on our discussion of Francis Johnson. Now, this entire situation with Francis is really quite complex. So what I'm going to do today is walk through his testimony at trial. It's not very long, but I want to lay the foundation to you what he stated in trial and any consistencies we might find in that testimony. And then next week, we're going to take a deep dive, detailed look into Francis Johnson. But before we do any of that, I want to start off today's show by talking about what's going on in the Carrie Max Cook case.
Carrie Max Cook is the poster child for Smith County injustice. All of these cases that we've discussed, Kenny Snow, Andrew Mitchell, Edward Eights, all of them are horrible, but none of them quite compare to Carrie Max Cook's 40-year struggle to clear his name for a murder that he did not commit. I know a lot of you have already read this, and I've recommended it several times, but if you haven't already, you need to read Carrie's book, Chasing Justice. In the pages of that book, you'll see how Carrie's life was nearly destroyed by the Smith County justice system. He spent 22 years on death row. He has always maintained his innocence, and his time on death row nearly killed him. Carrie suffered through rapes, beatings, mutilation, and even attempted suicide. All of this while he should have been living his life as a free man. But Smith County's insistence on getting a conviction at all costs stole that right away from Carrie Max Cook. You'll remember that last month, Carrie finally had his opportunity to have his claim of actual innocence heard before a judge in Tyler. But at the last minute, the hearing was canceled. The reason it was canceled has been a mystery to all of us. Until now. One of the benefits of the work that I've been doing in Tyler, Texas, is that I finally have several boots on the ground, so to speak. I now have several reliable sources in Tyler that are passing information along to me, but have asked that I keep their name off record. Now, I haven't seen official documentation to confirm this, but my sources tell me that it was actually Carrie Max Cook's defense team that postponed the hearing. And I'm told that the reason they postponed the hearing is because they have discovered new evidence. Incredible new evidence. The postponement, I'm told, was to give Carrie's legal team an opportunity to amend their writ to include all of this new evidence. And while I haven't seen documentation for that, I've been sending open records requests into the clerk's office almost daily for any amendments that are coming in on Carrie's case. And this week, Carrie Max Cook's attorneys indeed have started firing away amendments to their writ. So far, at the time of this recording, I have copies of three of those amendments. I've been told that a few more have been filed, but they haven't been officially received yet. And as soon as they're officially received in the mail, I'll be getting copies of those as well. One of the things included in one of these amendments is a copy of a police report from 1992. This is right before Carrie Max Cook's retrial. This police report indicates that James Mayfield, now James Mayfield, if you remember, was the boyfriend of Linda Jo Edwards, the victim in this case. He's the one that was married and was having an affair with Linda Jo Edwards. And Linda's roommate, Miss Rudolph, had originally stated that he was the one that she saw in the apartment that night that Linda Jo Edwards was murdered. Now, based on the context of this affidavit, I'm assuming that this was a police report that was never turned over to the defense. The report describes meetings that Mr. Mayfield had with David Dobbs. Part of their discussion was the fact that Mayfield had taken eight polygraph tests and failed four of them. There's also this section of the report that's highlighted in the amendment. It states, quote, It should also be pointed out that Ms. Rudolph, in her original statement, said that she, quote, thought the man was Mr. Mayfield, not that it was Mr. Mayfield. Ms. Rudolph did later state that the man she saw was Mr. Mayfield, but that was after extensive questioning by Mr. Thompson, the lead prosecutor in the case. So this is right before Carrie Max Cook's second trial. The police and David Dobbs were aware of the fact, clearly, that Miss Rudolph's initial identification was not that the person in that room was Carrie Max Cook, but it was in fact James Mayfield. 
and right after this, they went into trial and put her on the stand to testify that she saw Carrie Max Cook in that apartment and not James Mayfield. Another new piece of evidence that's being added to the hearing is a cassette tape from an interview with Texas Ranger Stuart Dowell. This interview took place back in 1977, way back at the beginning of this investigation. The Texas Ranger had interviewed the assistant manager at the apartment complex where Linda Jo Edwards lived and was murdered. Now, I don't know exactly what the contents of this tape are, but another new exhibit being entered in is an affidavit written by Cheryl Watley. Cheryl Watley was Carrie Cook's initial trial attorney back in 77. In her affidavit, she is stating that she was never provided a copy of this tape and that the tape was recorded in 1977. And let me just read you the last paragraph of her affidavit. This tape contains exculpatory evidence that I would have used in my defense of Mr. Cook. The failure of the district attorney's office to provide me with this tape violated Mr. Cook's due process rights. So whatever's on that tape contained exculpatory evidence, and the Smith County Prosecutor's Office withheld that evidence from the defense. And there's another piece of new evidence being added to the exhibit list, and it regards this tape. The new piece of evidence is a handwritten note written by a guy named Robin from Robin Hood Studios to the prosecutor's office. The note says, This cassette has been rejoined. However, it still has damage from previous attempts to fix it, and it is not to be considered repaired. Damage will result in an attempt to play this cassette in its present condition. The significance of this note is that the prosecution not only had this tape in their possession in 1999, but that they were actively working on it. So they have known what was on this tape for the last 15 years. And they obviously knew what was on it all the way back in 1977 as well. And clearly the tape is playable because in Cheryl Watley's affidavit, she says that she listened to the tape and that it contains exculpatory evidence. So for the last 15 years, while the Smith County District Attorney's Office has been fighting Gary Max Cook's exoneration, they had in their possession this entire time this tape that contained exculpatory evidence. And from the sounds of it, Carrie's legal team just discovered this tape within the last month or so. And the last piece of new evidence that's being admitted into this hearing, although I'm sure it's not the end of it, but the last that I have so far, is an affidavit written by someone named Deborah Tittle. Deborah Tittle was the assistant district attorney back in 1992 during Carrie Max Cook's second trial. This affidavit was written on August 31st of 1992. And again, this is a piece of evidence that was never disclosed to Carrie's defense team. The handwritten affidavit states, Approximately six to eight weeks ago, while in Judge Joe Tunnel's chambers, we were discussing various subjects, and in the course of our conversation, Judge Tunnel mentioned the Carrie Cook case. His statements were along the lines of, quote, The state has no evidence against Carrie Cook. When I left his chambers, I had the impression he didn't believe that we had a case. I'm trying to figure out why the assistant district attorney would write such an affidavit. I discussed it with a couple of local Texas lawyers, and they had the impression that this was probably preparation for Dobbs and Tittle to work on getting Judge Tunnel recused. She's writing the affidavit stating that basically he doesn't believe they have a case. As a matter of fact, again, the quote is, the state has no evidence against Carrie Cook. It's possible that she was trying to show some bias on the judge's part. I believe Judge Tunnel was the one who ended up presiding over the trial, so they must have worked out their differences. But more importantly for Carrie, what this shows is that again, in 1992, 
After being convicted and sentenced to death row and having his conviction thrown out, here Smith County is in the process of trying him again for the second time, and the judge in the case knows that they have no evidence. He knows that they don't have a case against Kerry Cook. Yet, as they've continued to do, that didn't stop them from continuing on with prosecuting Kerry Max Cook for a murder that he didn't commit. So much of what goes on in Smith County doesn't make any sense. But all it takes is to look just a little bit deeper to start to make some sense out of the weird behavior out of the prosecutor's office. Some of you locals or anybody that follows along on Twitter might be familiar with the last name Tittle. Someone posted not too long ago a picture of a billboard in Tyler of the law offices of Dobbs and Tittle. These two work together now in their own private practice. And why shouldn't they? I mean, after all, Deborah Tittle, the assistant district attorney in 1992, is David Dobbs' wife. Gary Max Cook's 40-year legal struggle has been named by legal scholars around the country and even around the world as the worst documented case of prosecutorial misconduct to ever exist. Even the decision by the Supreme Court that finally freed Carrie Max Cook after two decades on death row cited the egregious prosecutorial and police misconduct in his case. And I know that a lot of you are thinking that this is interesting, but we want to hear more about Edward Eight's case. But what you have to realize is that all of these cases are connected. David Dobbs prosecuted both Carrie Max Cook and Edward Eight's. His misconduct in the Carrie Max Cook case gives us a direct understanding of what was done in the Edward Eight's case. This man has a track record of breaking all the rules and doing whatever he has to do to get his conviction at all costs. And he hates to lose. Remember that Edward Eights had been released for four years before he was brought back into trial. In 1997, David Dobbs lost a big one. That's when Kerry Max Cook was finally released. And in response to that, all of a sudden, Edward Eights is brought back to trial. All the witnesses' testimonies have changed. They grabbed themselves a jailhouse snitch. And Dobbs finally got his conviction. But as you all know, Kerry Max Cook's struggle didn't end there. He's continued his fight for 20 years since he was released. And Kerry needs our support. I'm asking you for your support for him. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, and I want to mention again, that Kerry Cook's hearing for his claim of actual innocence is to take place just one week from tomorrow. The hearing begins on June 6th. And from my understanding, it's no longer going to be a two-day hearing. I believe with all of this new evidence, we're now looking at a hearing that's going to cover two different things. Number one, his actual innocence, and number two, the prosecutorial misconduct in his case. I'm told that both David Dobbs and the Honorable Judge Jack Skeen are going to be called on the witness stand. From what I'm told by who I'll say is a very reliable source in Tyler, Texas, Back in April, David Dobbs was sworn back into the district attorney's office in order to help prosecute Kerry Cook's case and to shield him from being called as a witness. But thankfully, Kerry's attorneys got onto it immediately and objected to this, and his swearing in was withdrawn. He will not be allowed, from what I understand, to prosecute Kerry Cook, and he will be called as a witness. If it is at all possible for you to make it to that hearing, Kerry needs the biggest outpouring of support possible. 
even if you can only be there for one or two days of the hearing. If you're able, please make the effort to head to Tyler, Texas for this hearing, which is scheduled to run from June 6th all the way through, I believe, June 10th. And I have one other favor to ask of you and the Truth and Justice Army that live in or near Tyler, Texas. This week, in just two days, on May 31st, there's going to be a hearing for the judge to rule on the prosecution's motion to exclude 80 items of Kerry Max Cook's defense team's evidence. I talked about this motion last month before the last hearing. They're attempting to block Kerry's team from entering in these 80 items of evidence. I cannot be down in Tyler this week. What I need is for any of you, anyone that has the ability to sit, listen, and take notes, to sit in on that hearing and report back to me what went on. If that's something you're able to do, please get a hold of me. Either send me an email to theories at truthandjusticepod.com, shoot me a direct message on Twitter. Remember, the Twitter handle is at truthjusticepod, or a private message on the Truth and Justice with Barbara Facebook page. I need at least one person to be in that courtroom this Tuesday. And again, I need as many of you as possible, anyone that can get there, to try to be in Tyler for Carrie's hearing on June 6th through the 10th. Because of Carrie Max Cook's tenacity and insistence to keep on fighting and not accept what the Smith County justice system is giving him, the Smith County DA's office, and namely Jack Skeen and David Dobbs, are finally going to have to answer for their misconduct. And I want them to answer to it in front of a packed courtroom. Next, I want to do a quick follow-up to the last two weeks' episode. Several listeners have asked me through Twitter and email and Facebook messages whether or not we have any confirmation as to whether or not Elnora Griffin actually ate her dinner at a normal time the night she was murdered. As all of you remember, there was a full meal cooked on the stove that hadn't been touched. We had evidence indicating that she had already eaten her meal earlier in the evening. For starters, according to Ed, Elnora always ate her dinner at a normal time after work, and a lot of the time she would eat that meal at his grandmother's house. We have the fact that there was a single setting of a plate and silverware in her sink. These few things certainly indicate that she had already eaten her meal at a normal time around 5 or 6 that evening. But now we have even further confirmation. This will be up on the website, but as I mentioned a week or two ago, I now have the full copy of Elnora Griffin's autopsy report. In that autopsy, it states that when they opened up her stomach, that Elnora Griffin had 400 cc's of partially digested food in her stomach. So what that means is that now we can say confidently that Elnora had already eaten her dinner and that that meal on the stove was not for her. And another question that several people have asked me is whether or not she had any drugs or anything in her system. And the autopsy report also confirms that Elnora had no drugs or alcohol in her system at the time of her death. And one last thing that I want to follow up on that occurred to me while I was talking to Ed on the phone this morning. We were talking about the case, and I was going through the crime scene photos on my computer as we were speaking, and something jumped out at me that hadn't occurred to me before. You remember when I said before that Jason Waller's testimony, that on the night the body was found, that the radio in Elnora's car was tuned to a rap music station, had to have been a lie. You remember they didn't have the keys, and Melody McKay testified that a week later on Thursday the 29th, they went back and they had to hotwire the car in order to hear which radio station it was on. I had also pointed out in that episode that the car had been moved prior to them hotwiring it and listening to the radio. There's a picture posted on the website 
signed and initialed by Jesse Nelson. Remember, he's the guy that identified Elnora's car at the apartment complex that night. But the police had taken a Polaroid in the daylight of Elnora's car and showed it to him. He initialed it and dated it on July 26th. But in that photo, the car was pulled back to the place where Elnora usually parks her car. The point that I was making at the time was that whatever radio station the car was tuned to on the 29th is irrelevant because obviously someone had been in the car and moved it before they went in and hotwired the car. This also calls into question the idea that the seat had been pushed all the way back. But what hadn't occurred to me until today is the fact that the police reported that Elnora's wallet and keys were never recovered. Remember, that's the reason Melody McKay said they had to hotwire the car on the 29th. But here's the problem. On Monday, the 26th, Jesse Nelson is initialing a photograph taken by the police. And in the photograph, the car has been moved. Elnora's car is an automatic. If her keys had been taken and they were never recovered, then how the hell did they move the car? With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Time for some happy news. On May 23rd, just six days before you're hearing this recording, Judge Vincent Brissetti of the Southern District Court in New York issued a final judgment order with the consent of the Putman County District Attorney Robert Tendy vacating William Hoagie's, and you have to forgive me here, I may be mispronouncing his name. It's H-O-U-G-H-E-Y. But the order vacated William's arson conviction, stating that the evidence adduced at his trial was not only legally insufficient in that no rational trier of fact could have found proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, but also that he had established by clear and convincing evidence that he is actually innocent of the offense of which he was convicted. Judge Bersetti not only threw out his conviction, but threw out his indictment and has completely wiped this off of William's record. This exoneration is a direct result of the work of friend of the show, Jeff Deskovich. And now that William is a free man, one of the first things on the agenda was for Jeff and William to sit down and give me a call. Hey, Jeff, how you doing, bud? I'm good. How are you? I'm amazing. Sounds like you're having a pretty incredible day. Absolutely. Yeah, this is definitely an incredible day. Yeah. Very, very happy. Very, very ecstatic. Long time in coming. I got William Harvey right here with me. How you doing, William? I'm doing great. Yourself? I'm doing fantastic. And congratulations on your exoneration. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, did you just get out today? 
Yeah, because the parties were in agreement that uh, Bill was actually innocent, and it was just you know a matter of getting a judge to sign an order. There was an agreement that he would be released on his own cognizance. The actual official decision signed by the judge was a couple of days ago on Monday, Monday the 23rd. Let's go ahead and do this. I'm going to, rather than lead in and me kind of tell the story, if you guys got a couple of minutes, William, can you kind of walk through what happened to you and then maybe Jeff walk us through uh, how you helped out in getting William out of that prison? Sure. Where would you like me to start, sir? Let's go ahead and start with William as far as what were you convicted of and how did you end up getting convicted? And obviously it was on uh, inaccurate evidence, but just kind of tell your story and then we'll hear from Jeff as far as how his foundation helped to get you out. Well, the actual charges against me were uh, second-degree arson and third-degree criminal mischief. As it turned out, the initial investigation was fundamentally flawed. The county commissioner had requested two uh, fire marshals from retired New York City fire marshals to reinvestigate. And when they did, they determined that the fire could not have been started by a patron in the bar. It was actually started in an area that was not accessible to any of us. But nevertheless, I was convicted on uh, the erroneous conclusions of this novice arson investigator. Sent away, and I, I started reaching out to numerous people. And one of the, the people that I contacted was the, the late commissioner of Putnam County Emergency Services, who made contact with two retired New York City fire marshals, Paul Roncalo and William Tulipane. And as I said, they, they reinvestigated this entire case and determined the fire not to be a criminal act. Subsequent to that, after the state appeals were exhausted, the New York State Attorney General had their Conviction Review Bureau have the case reviewed again, and they retained their own independent expert, and they too determined that the fire could not be determined to be a criminal act. As soon as the new, uh, newly elected Putnam County District Attorney Robert Tenney took office, he uh, knew of the problems right of this case and uh, sent it to his uh, newly founded Conviction Review Bureau out of Putnam County, had it reviewed by Two uh, former prosecutors, uh, one from Manhattan and one from, I believe it was the Bronx, and a private investigator, and uh, they too came back with no criminal act. He immediately moved to the federal court to have this thing uh, set aside and get me out of jail. Uh, Mr. Deskovic and his foundation have been uh, actively pursuing my appeals for several years right now uh, with the assistance of Ms. Reed Dave Valley who ultimately brought this thing to a conclusion. She had been working with Putnam County District Attorney Bob Pendy for several months in summing this thing up. And uh, it finally came to a head on May 9th. And uh, the federal judge released me on my own recognizance. And uh, the final order was signed by Judge Bersetti as the Southern District of New York District Court Judge, exonerating me on actual innocence, clearly established act, uh, actual innocence, and uh, ineffective assistance of counsel and insufficiency of evidence because there was no criminal act. Well, that's that's great. And how long did you spend in prison? Approximately eight years and four months. Eight years and four months for a crime you didn't commit. And now that you're free, tell me this, William, what was the first thing you did when you got out? I had a nice meal. <laughs> <laughs> I had, had a nice meal and uh, got together with family and friends and enjoyed myself, you know. That sounds great. I've heard the uh, prison food's not all it's cracked up to be, huh? No, unless you're a fan of the <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's amazing. Well, I'm really happy for you, and I'm just, you know, I just got in contact with Jeff just a couple of months back, and I've been really impressed with the work he's doing. And so I was, I was really excited to hear from him that they've managed to get an exoneration, and and someone gets to go home to be with their family again. And and your yours is completely exonerated, right? They threw out your indictment; everything's thrown out, correct? 
Yes, they threw out the indictment with prejudice, so it can never be brought up again. And uh, we're working on right now summing up the state record. I've already been stripped out of the uh, the New York State Department of Correctional Services. It, it's not. It's like I'm was never even there. They're working on getting back all my my criminal records from the New York State Department of Criminal Justice Services to have this whole thing expunged from my record right now. There's so much work to be done, but the hard part's over. <laughs> right. I can only imagine. Now, and how was the how was the effect of this on your family? Are you married, Jeff? Or excuse me, William? No, I'm I'm not married. I'm single. But uh, it still had a lasting effect on on my immediate family. I'm, I'm blessed in, in that aspect that my family was very supportive. I had a lot of very loyal friends that uh, stood by me with the help of numerous others like uh, Mr. Descovic and his foundation and lawyers that worked for him and investigators and several attorneys that I've met over the years that had offered guidance. It's been a whirlwind, you know. It's been a long, long road. <laughs> but all roads must come to an end, and mine, mine ends, you know, they ended favorably. Yep, and that's that's amazing, William, and, and I can't congratulate you enough. I'm 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 inc- so incredibly happy for you. And uh, eight years is a long time to to spend locked up for something you didn't do. So I want to congratulate you and wish you well, brother. And I hope and I hope everything continues to go in your way as things move forward. All right, thank you very much, sir. You're welcome. Now I want to talk to Jeff. Is Jeff still there? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Congratulations to you, brother. That was this is some pretty amazing work you've done here. Thank you. Yeah, it's very uh, it's very meaningful. When I started the foundation nearly four years ago, the dream was to free similarly situated people who also were wrongfully imprisoned and uh, to achieve this second exoneration. You know, it's very, very meaningful. Aside from my own day of when I was exonerated, I'd have to say that all these exonerating moments is definitely the uh, most the best days in my life. Well, yeah, I'm sure it's a lot of work, and it's it's nice to have it. Uh, it's a long and slow process too, so it's got to be amazing when it when it pays off in the end. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's uh, you know, we were talking at a celebratory meal earlier. Myself, Mr. Hawkey, uh, Paul Uncalo, who's um, you know, retired fire marshal, who is an uh, expert here in this uh, in, in this case on behalf of Mr. Hawkey. We were talking about how easy it is to put somebody in prison. Uh, and how difficult it is to get them out. It's such a long process, and to um, have it bring to a culmination, I mean, it's a surreal It's a surreal feeling, but it's also one of frustration. I mean, the average life of wealth incarceration is 14 years. I mean, there's no reason that this had to take this long. Yeah, and it's that's the frustrating part, but I, I feel like from what I've read, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the process for William went a little faster than normal because you took a little different approach, if I'm read, reading the stories correctly, where typically these are you know, an adversarial situation where it's you know an organization like you or myself or the Innocence Project that are, that are fighting against the DA's office. You took a little different approach, and, and you had a pretty amicable uh, route through this, and you were, you were able to convince the DA to work with you. Is that right? That's exactly right. Through, through the Foundations Council, uh, Rita Dabe, uh, you know, we were able to get the DA to work with us. Uh, you know, he was, you know, he was a DA. You know, he was a new district attorney. He had beaten the prior uh, incumbent at, at an election. And, you know, the, the, the attitude differential between him and the prior DA was like night and day. Uh, he was, he had an open mind. There was open communication. There was passing information back and forth. And, and his conviction review unit looked at everything. And, Ultimately, they agreed. They agreed with us, and so they joined the defense motion uh, first to get Mr. Hawley out, and then to um, 
to overturn the conviction, dismiss the indictment. He signed stipulations stating that uh, not only was there legally insufficient evidence to convict him, but also that he was actually innocent, you know, that he received ineffective assistance of counsel. So it was a, it was a joint uh, agreement there. And so in that aspect of it, yes, it, it, was, it did go a lot faster than what typically would be the case. I mean, had uh, DA Tendi not been in office, then, you know, we, we, would have, we would have had to litigate in court, and who knows how long that would have taken. Uh, as you know, I mean, one of the reasons that wrongful convictions on average last, last 14 years is because, you know, often the fight is whether or not a judge is going to be objective and, and give a legitimate ruling on the facts and the law, and whether they're going to even be open-minded to consider the arguments as opposed to just rubber stamps denying. I mean, I feel like that's why a lot of these convictions go on for as long as they did. So who knows what type of decisions we would have encountered through the court, uh, how long it would have taken us to win, whether or not we actually would have won. I mean, clearly we had the facts on our, our behalf, but often that isn't enough to carry today. Right. You know, I, th- I, I compare this to looking at uh, like Kerry Max Cook's case where, you know, in his case as well, there's clear and convincing evidence that the man is, is 100% innocent of this crime. And here he is still 40 years later fighting for his exoneration due to an adversarial system. So, I mean, you know, I, I want to, you know, I, I want to give some props to the, is it the Putnam County District Attorney? Yes, Putnam County District Attorney uh, uh, Tendi. Because of the nature of what I do, you know, we hear a lot about all the bad in our justice system. And I want to make sure that we give credit where credit is due when, when there's still good men and women in the system that are doing the right thing. And it sounds like that was the case here and and in no small part to the work you're doing in in negotiating this and working with them to make it happen. I mean, I, I applaud you and I applaud the Putnam County District Attorney's Office. And 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 th- this is amazing. And, 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 you know, I'm proud to know you, Jeff, for the work that you're doing. This is it's just incredible. Thank you. I really uh, appreciate that. A couple of points to build to build on from your statements is, you know, I feel I feel like it's really important for principal people to run for office. You know, this is like the second example. Uh, you know, Brooklyn DA Ken Thompson be, being another one running for office, the Brooklyn DA's office, and uh, then you know, taking the, winning the election, taking the helm, and then being able to have a real conviction review unit where they had their hands on the levers of power. It's a lot easier to overturn lawful convictions from that position. So I hope that the, the trend of the people who are committed to being a minister of justice, who, you know, which means, of course. Convicting the guilty, but using constitutional evidence without running over anybody's rights while dismissing cases against people who are actually innocent. Having people committed to that principle running for, for, for office, I mean, we can see what a tremendous difference that makes. Yeah, and there uh, sounds like some of these counties in New York are certainly setting the example. Jeff, before before I let you go, I know last time you were on, we we plugged your your Patreon campaign for your foundation, and you had an issue with the link. So I want to take this opportunity again. And and what this is for you listeners is is Jeff's foundation, the the Jeff Discovich Foundation. They are they are funded through donations for this Patreon site, where you can go on and you can set up to give uh, ongoing monthly donation. And and there are enough of you listening that a small donation, a couple of dollars a month, will go a really long ways 
to making sure that Just Foundation has all the resources to continue doing the work that they're doing. Uh, because a lot of the money that is going into the donate to the foundation and what's funding it is actually Jeff's own personal money uh, that he received in compensation for his wrongful conviction. So I, w- I, w- I would really encourage all of you listeners to go onto the foundation's page, the, the Patreon page, and and make a donation, whatever you can afford, a couple dollars or more a month, and and that'll go a long way. And Jeff, what's the what's the URL? Where can they go to do that? If you go to uh, patreon.com and I type in Deskovic Foundation, I'll, I'll, uh, I've emailed you the link um, b- before, uh, which we can, you can um, post that. Uh, the thing I want to add, too, is beyond people donating, which obviously I need, but they can encourage their friends to do the, to do the, to, to do, to do the same thing. Uh, there's more people like William Hall. He's still, still inside. We, we desperately need to hire additional lawyers, paralegals, investigators that we can uh, liberate more people. This is our second exoneration overall. Uh, you know, we did convince the parole board to release three other people on innocence grounds where it was clear from the record that they were innocent, that case was wasn't in the right procedural position yet to, to try to establish that in, in court. But you see, you know, the results of our work speak for for itself. Having the, what the money be used for is transparent on the site. So we need to get more people out. I hope that this will further inspire confidence on the part of the listeners that you know, we are an effective organization and, you know, we, we use the money exactly for what, what we say we do. And none, none of it, none of, none of it uh, yeah, is going to my personal pocket. That's right. And like you said, the record speaks for itself in four years, what, two exonerations and uh, three yeah. parole releases? Yes, exactly right. And we have several other cases that we're not that, we're not that far away from winning. But, you know, we have, we, we're averaging 15 to 20 new requests for help a week. We have a backlog of about 600 cases just simply waiting to be screened. So, you know, we definitely need to hire more uh, more personnel. Uh, exoneration is not an easy thing to, to achieve, but we've been able to do, turn the trick twice in four years, possibly having another one within the next calendar year. But we want to be able to work on more cases and get more people out as fast as we possibly can. And to do that, unfortunately, I mean, the employees, they have salaries and you know, the personnel have to get paid for their work because they're not independently wealthy. So that's what the money would go for. Well, that's excellent. I want you to, uh, again, congratulate you and also congratulate William one more time. Uh, I know you got a lot of people to talk to, so I won't keep you on the phone all day, but keep doing what you're doing. Keep the faith, Jeff. It was great to hear from you. Thank you. Same here, Bob. And, uh, you know, the Deskovic Foundation is really proud to, uh, you know, you're not just encouraging, you know, people to give to the Patreon campaign, but, uh, we appreciate not only the plug, but then also we appreciate counting, you know, counting you uh, as a donor yourself. So you're not asking people to do anything that you're not doing yourself. So I just want to uh, express my, you know, a- a appreciation to you for that and, you know, the support that uh, you've given. Even offline, as I've asked for different opinions and you've helped guide me along the way. And so I want to thank you, my, uh, thank you as well for not just that, but the work you do on on truth and justice and helping to bring light to a lot of these uh, wrongful conviction cases. I mean, you mentioned Terry Max Cook, a uh, well-known wrongful conviction case that was still waiting to get justice. And, of course, Adnan Saeed from uh, Serial Fame as well as your own show. So awesome stuff, Bob, is what I'm trying to get at. All right. Well, thanks, Jeff. You guys have a great day. It was great hearing from you. Sure.
If that interview doesn't encourage you about our mission, I don't think anything can. Jeff is a perfect example of how one man on a mission can help to change the world. He's certainly changed the world for William. Jeff has been fighting and is continuing to fight to right the wrongs of injustice in this country. He is the proof that we can make a difference, that you can make a difference. Stories like this are the reason why we fight. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. For the last segment today, I want to briefly break down the trial testimony of Francis Johnson. Francis is the man that was dating Elnora Griffin in the summer of 93, along with Leonard Mosley. He's also the man that brought the Kenny Snow case and the Edward Aids case together. Aids claimed that while in the Smith County Jail, Francis Johnson told him in a conversation that he had been at Elnora Griffin's trailer on the night of the murder. Ed says that he told him that she owed him money, they had sex, then they had a fight, that he beat her up, and then he left. But Francis somehow escaped all scrutiny in this case. He was never questioned by the police, and you'll see here in a minute how he weaseled his way out of any involvement at the trial. Now next week, I'm going to do a detailed breakdown of how Francis Johnson may have been involved in the murder of Elnora Griffin. We're going to compare his testimony with the testimony of several other people that were involved in this case. But this week, I just want to break down to you what he stated at Edward Eight's trial. While on the stand, Francis Johnson testified that he did indeed know Elnora Griffin in July of 1993. He stated that they dated at one time, but they never really narrowed down exactly when they dated. He does say that they began dating before Elnora moved to Tyler. See, Elnora was originally from the Dallas area, and he says that about three to four weeks before she moved back, he had met her at Johnny Pryor's house. He stated that he actually helped her move into the trailer and that he was even the one who paid her first month's rent. He said he spent nights with her at the trailer and that he would visit occasionally. Now, as you start to go through the trial transcripts on the website, you'll see several places where someone is mentioned that drives a white Corvette. This is another person that Elnora Griffin was dating. Now, the man they're referring to is a guy named Lionel Williams, and I have his very short testimony posted on the website as well. But according to Francis Johnson's testimony, it was Lionel, or the guy in the white Corvette, that caused him and Elnora to break up, not Leonard Mosley. In fact, he says that he didn't know that she was dating Mosley. Francis testified that he was at a fish fry at Johnny Pryor's house with Elnora, and Lionel Williams was there. Now, when Lionel Williams testifies, he testifies that he doesn't ever remember seeing Francis Johnson, or at least that he doesn't know who he is. But Francis remembers, and he also remembers seeing that white Corvette in Elnora's driveway. He says that he confronted her about it, and that he was upset. He said that he was upset because, quote, I had spent my money. I'm assuming that he's referring to the fact that he had helped her move in and that he had paid her first month's rent for her. 
Now, just as a point of reference, timeline-wise, Leonard Mosley testified that he and Elnora had started dating in November of 92, and were still dating up through July of 93 when she was murdered. So like I said, Elnora's relationship status was complicated. None of the three of these guys say that they were in an exclusive relationship with Elnora. Elnora had apparently told several of her friends that she was engaged to Leonard Mosley, but he says they had just talked about getting married. Francis, in his testimony, says that the relationship was no big deal, that he had a lot of other people in his life. And nobody ever really nails down Lionel Williams as to the exact nature of their relationship. He did testify that at the time of the murder, they still spoke on the phone and saw each other regularly. But as far as Francis Johnson is concerned, he says that they stopped seeing each other after he saw the white Corvette in her driveway and they had a confrontation about it. Then he testifies that shortly after that, in fact, during the time when Ed was arrested, which was in August of 93, that he was dating Ed's mother. And Margie did confirm to me that they dated for about a year. In fact, Margie told me that Frances Johnson was the catalyst to her crack addiction. Margie told me that for about three years she was badly addicted to crack. And she says that Frances Johnson, who she referred to as a crackhead, is the person that introduced her to the drug. Now, Francis goes on to say that the last time that he saw Elnora Griffin alive was when he had confronted her about the guy in the Corvette. And he says that he might have seen her a few times at Johnny's house after that. When asked about their relationship after the breakup, Francis says that they were still friendly. And they saw each other occasionally because he spent a lot of time at Johnny's house. In his direct testimony, he testified that Johnny had hired him to seal leaks in the pond behind Elnora's trailer right around the time of the murder. In direct examination, Leonard states clearly that he was helping work on this pond in July or August, but right around the time of the murder. So by the time the direct examination is over, we at least know that Francis Johnson was in town spending time around Elnora's trailer in July and August and right around the time when she was murdered. Enter David Dobbs. In cross-examination, the first thing Dobbs asks Francis Johnson is for him to explain any possible felony charges that he has. Francis explains that he has a felony charge for possession of a controlled substance out of Clayton County, Georgia. I pulled the documents from Georgia, and Francis was indeed convicted of this in December of 1989. He was sentenced to five years, with three years of that probated. And this is where Dobbs starts to muck things up. During the questioning, Leonard then states that he was on probation for that drug charge at the time that he was working on the pond. He says that his probation was revoked after he worked on the pond, and at that time he was sent to a halfway house in Clayton County, Georgia. And the way it's described, the way this halfway house works, is basically it's jail, except for the inmates can leave the house and go to work and come back. So I want you to take note here. So far, Francis has testified that he was working on the pond in July or August of 1993. And now under Cross, he states that he was on probation when he was digging the pond, and that his probation was revoked and he was sent to the halfway house after he got done with the pond. At this point, David Dobbs presents Exhibit 137. This is a document titled, Residence Financial Obligation Report, and it's up on the website. Now, the defense hadn't seen this document yet. When they got up on Vordier, Ed's attorneys asked Francis where the document came from and how it came into the possession of the district attorney's office. Francis testified that David Dobbs actually went out to his house to get this document. And take a minute and go onto the website and look at it. It does indeed say Residence Financial Obligation Report, but that's all it says. 
There's no initials or signatures anywhere on it. There's not even a title as to where it came from. It doesn't say the name of the facility. It doesn't say anything. There's no way of knowing what this document actually is. But Ed's attorneys allowed it to come into evidence. Dobbs then asks Francis to testify from the document. He directs him to the week of July 19th. This document shows how much the residents are paying for room and board, any fines, food, everything is on there. And Dobbs points out that on the week of July 19th, 1993, that Francis paid room and board for that week. Basically, what he's doing here is he's showing the jury that there's no way that Francis Johnson could have been anywhere around Elnora's trailer in July of 1993 because that week he was paying room and board for this halfway house in Georgia. As soon as Francis points out that the room and board was paid for that week, Dobbs sits down and Ed's team gets back up. They asked him how long of a drive it is from Clayton County, Georgia to Tyler, Texas. And Francis says it's about a 14-hour drive. And just as an aside, I went on to Google Maps and checked it out. And currently, it's listed as a 10-hour and 48-minute drive, not 14 hours. But who knows if there's a difference between now and 1993 as far as speed limits and things like that are concerned. Ed's attorneys come in and start to make an attempt to break down this alibi. They asked him how he could have been working on a pond in Texas when he was supposed to be at a halfway house in Georgia. Francis starts backpedaling at this point, and he says that when he stated earlier that he was working on the pond at about the time all this happened, that he didn't mean the murder. He meant about the time that he was dating Elnora. Ed's attorneys were right on the brink of breaking this alibi to pieces, and they just backed off after this. And I don't know how that happened. All I can figure is that Ed's attorneys didn't remember that just 10 minutes before this, when Francis was being questioned about when he was working on that pond, he did say that it was about the time all of this was happening, but then he followed it up and explicitly said that he was working on the pond in July or August, and again reiterated it was right around that time. He was clearly not talking about the time when they were dating. He made clear of the exact months when he was working on that pond but Ed's attorneys just let it go. They moved on from that and asked him if he ever got weekend passes to come back to Tyler while he was in the halfway house in Georgia. Francis testified that he never got weekend passes because he didn't have anyone to visit in Texas. They must have also forgotten that he stated that he was dating Ed's mom and that they began dating right about the time that Ed was arrested, and in fact that they were dating when he was arrested, in August of 93. And that was it. That was the entire attempt that Ed's legal team made to try to impeach Francis' testimony and break down this alibi that he had just created. He left the stand, and the jury was left with the knowledge that Francis Johnson could not have been in Tyler, Texas on July 22, 1993, because he was in Georgia, which made Kenny Snow's testimony all that much more devastating. Kenny had testified that Ed told him to lie and say that Francis told him he was there that night. And this testimony confirmed that Ed was lying about it, because Francis couldn't have been there that night. He was in Georgia, right? Well, what Ed's attorney should have done is what I did, and make a records request from Clayton County, Georgia, and verify what Francis Johnson was telling them. I made that request, and what I found out blows Francis Johnson's alibi completely out of the water. His probation wasn't revoked that summer after he dug the pond. Francis Johnson's probation was revoked on January 19, 1993. That's when he was sentenced to the halfway house, before he was in Texas working on that pond. 
before he was in Texas dating Elnora Griffin, before he and Elnora broke up when he saw Lionel Williams' white Corvette in her driveway, before he started dating Margie Jackson. Francis Johnson was sentenced to live in that halfway house the entire time he was doing all of these things in Texas. Exhibit 137 means nothing. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all of the music for the show. Don't forget that you can purchase any individual song or the entire Truth and Justice soundtrack on iTunes, and all the proceeds of those sales go directly to Johnny Rose. Thank you to Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to our editor, Daniel Schaefer. I want to thank all of today's sponsors, the Sundance Now Dot Club, Squarespace, and the Ring Video Doorbell. And as always, I want to say thank you to all of you for staying involved. Keep sending those emails to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod or like the Truth and Justice Facebook page. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.